There was the fall of, well, not just the Berlin Wall, but the whole communist bloc across Eastern Europe was one example. Just a few years before all of that, though, the Philippines had thrown out its long-standing president, Ferdinand Marcos, after hundreds of thousands of Filipinos took to the streets to protest against him. The protests that led to Marcos having to step down took place this week in 1986. Uh, Those protests were between February 22nd and 25th, and they were sparked by an election that Marcos claimed to have won. That turned out to be something an enormous number of Filipinos flatly disagreed with. Now, to tell you the story of this revolution, my guest in This Week in History is Mark Sanchez, Assistant Professor in the Department of Asian Studies at Vanderbilt Uni in the United States. He's also working on a book about this revolution. Hello, Mark. Welcome to This Week in History. Good to be here. And it will just say for some background, although you, you were born and, and raised in America, your parents are Filipino, so you, you definitely have a connection to the country. Certainly, my parents were born, uh, raised and educated in the Philippines and moved to the United States uh, during the Marcos dictatorship. So the story of why this revolution was needed goes back to 1965, so I guess the time when your parents were there, when Marcos became president of the Philippines. What was his background? How had he risen to become president? Well, this, yes. So by 1965, uh, Marcos was really a political rising star in the Philippines. His father had actually been a congressman. Um, he was uh, a hotshot lawyer, um, seen also to be, um, claimed also to be a war hero. Um, he had served in the House of Representatives and was recently the president uh, of the Senate. Um, his wife was a beauty queen, and they really formulated um, a, a really impressive power couple. Um, and in 1965, Marcos decides to break uh, with the political party that he was a part of and run against the incumbent, and uh, he wins. So, and now the, the democracy in the Philippines, when we go back to 65, was it pretty robust? Um, sorry, the, the economy or? No, the, the, the democracy of the Philippines. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, they, uh, there was already a, a, a tradition of democratic elections in the Philippines. Um, you know, in some ways, this, uh, this system was fairly robust, as you say. But in other ways, um, the, there was a lot of interference in Philippine elections. And this interference usually came uh, from the United States, who, uh, saw the, who saw the Philippines as a really important ally in Asia and wanted to make sure uh, that leaders that were allied with the United States were elected um, as president. Uh, and of course, because this is the Cold War, this is you know, the, um, the, the red bloc, the, the yellow peril, you know, all of this fear of communism spreading uh, across Asia. So, so the Philippines are a, a, a bulwark there, I guess. So what did the Philippines need economically and politically at the time that Marcos took power? At the time that Marcos takes power, the Philippines is actually on relatively strong footing 
economically, right? Like they, there's a, a strong agricultural industry. Uh, the GDP of the Philippines is relatively good and performing quite well in Asia and in Southeast Asia. So Marcos actually takes over a relatively strong economy. And this largely continues throughout his first term. Um, politically, uh, as I had just mentioned, uh, one of the important things for the Philippines is its relationship with the United States. And Marcos is also very careful to foster a strong um, alliance with the United States. So he became increasingly authoritarian, though. What were the first signs that he was heading in that direction? Well, this happens um, right around the time uh, that that we know of as the Global Year of Protest, 1968. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of increasing signs at this moment. Um, During this time, there are a lot of student protests uh, within uh, within the Philippines. There are protests of tuition, labor, the economy, as well as protest against um, the Philippines' involvement in the Vietnam War. And, you know, the, the, the signs of kind of authoritarianism kind of creep in here with uh, the ways that Marcos uh, becomes increasingly heavy-handed in the ways that he handles this protest. There are also insurgencies in the south of the Philippines that start um, in response to a massacre of, of Muslim soldiers um, in the south. And that um, that is another sign. One of the biggest signs, however, is the lead up to the 1969 election. Um, you know, uh, and in in this particular election, um, it becomes known as an election that is decided by what is called the three G's, guns, goons, and gold. Um, and this is in reference to um, the exorbitant amount of money that the Marcos, uh, the Marcos regime spends um, in, in uh, attempting to win re-election, as well as the uh, electoral violence that is witnessed during this, uh, during this particular electoral period. Now, it all makes sense when you put it in the context of, of those global protests that were happening right around the world, um, happening in the Philippines too. And so we get to 1972 and he declared martial law. So what were Marcos's uh, reasons for doing that? What did he say? Marcos pitches this as primarily a peace and order move, right? He blames the protesters. He blames the Communist Party of the Philippines. Um, he's saying that there is um, a lot of unrest in the Philippines and martial law is necessary um, to kind of create the discipline or an order that, is nece- that, that he views um, is much needed within, uh, within the Philippines. And so, in fact, though, I mean, what had, was there a big sort of communist, um, you know, threat or anything, or was the, the, these just excuses to try to stamp out opposition? In some ways, it's a little bit of both. There is a growing, uh, there is a growing uh, politically progressive and w- as well as radical movement within the Philippines. Much of it comes into being because of Marcos and because of Marcos's policies, um, and you know, there, uh, you know, and in in some ways it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the more that Marcos tries to clamp down on protesters, uh, the more um, the more robust uh, the opposition movement becomes, the more robust even the Communist Party becomes. 
as everyone's looking at this guy going, look at him cracking down on our liberties. We need to protest against him. Um, Mark Sanchez is here, Assistant Professor at the Department of Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University. We're talking about the Philippines People Power Revolution of February 1986. So there was the guns, goons and gold election. What else did he, what other kind of authoritarian decisions did Marcos take? So in 1972, when he declares martial law, um, this is accompanied by what what was called the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. And this uh, basically uh, allows Marcos to um, arrest people without bringing charges against them. And uh, there becomes, uh, you know, this uh, leads to a situation where there are tens of thousands of people that become political prisoners uh, during the Marcos regime. And as I mentioned before, um, after Marsh, um, uh, Marcos becomes more heavy handed in how he deals with protesters and after martial law, the, you know, the ability to protest becomes severely curtailed within the Philippines. Um, he says, uh, he then arrests political opponents, people that are members of the opposition party. And people are um, people that are in opposition to Marcos are either forced uh, to flee the Philippines or forced underground um, to hi- uh, to hide and evade from uh, evade arrest. Was it was it quite clear to most people in the Philippines that this is what was going on? Do you think that this was going on in terms of um, these arrests? Yeah. I mean, would you have yeah. known it if you were, I don't know, a farmer on a remote island? Would you have thought everything was fine? Or, you know, did enough people go, understand that things were happening that really shouldn't be in a stable democracy? Yeah, I think this is a this is a really fantastic question. And again, it, it is a little bit of both. People knew um, that there were arrests going on, uh, but, you know, for, for a, a decent amount of time during martial law, if you were... Um, if you were a person that was not involved in political movements, you might not uh, really notice um, a whole lot of things changing. Um, you might have a, a friend or a friend of a friend or a family member um, that you had heard of that had been arrested. Uh, but you know, for for some people, right? Like uh, for for some people. Um, there was a time period where you know you could feel relatively insulated or un- unaffected from um, from what was going on, um, and this is something that kind of gradually changes as time goes on. Uh, what about to the outside world? Was it also clear what was going on in the Philippines, and particularly to the U.S., who, as you were saying about Marcos's ally, but they would have had a very clear insights into what was going on. Yes, the United States absolutely knows uh, what is going on. Um, but, you know, the key thing to remember here is that Marcos is their man in in Southeast Asia. He is uh, someone that has pitched himself to the United States as a leader that would um, defend against the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. And as as you had mentioned before, during the Cold War, this is incredibly important. Um, what we've seen, though, is like um, we have also seen kind of, uh, you know, activists during the time uh, uncovered documents from the World Bank uh, that indicated that the World Bank, uh, you know, knew that Marcos was moving towards martial law and actually saw it as something that could be beneficial for the implementation of uh, the, the, the desired developmental policies um, that they wanted the Philippines to take um, that 
the control by uh, control of the Philippines by by one figure would make it easier to uh, implement uh, developmental plans. So uh, people around the world, governments around the world, particularly the United States, did know, um, and uh, for many of them, um, it was something that they deemed as acceptable. Yes, probably not not exactly ideal, but we'll put up with it because we need our guy is sitting there in Southeast Asia. Uh, Mark Sanchez is here, Assistant Professor in the Department of Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University. It's This Week in History. We're doing the Philippines People Power Revolution of 1986. So um, Marcos was growing increasingly rich, and as we know, by the time he fell from power, I mean, just filthily, unfathomably rich. Where was the money coming from? Well, you know, the story that the Marcoses like to tell or the myths that the Marcoses like to tell is like, you know, that they were already independently uh, incredibly wealthy. Um, there were also, also these myths that the money came from buried, uh, buried gold from World War II. But in short, the Marcoses got rich from money that was directed for, uh, for the Filipino people. Right. Um, this was a time where the, the Philippines had um, a lot of developmental loans from institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. The Marcos family installs loyal allies at the head of most major industries in the Philippines. And there's an incredible amount of corruption during this time period. And this corruption really be- benefits the Marcos family um, and you know grows their wealth into the billions. So they're literally just taking it. Was taking the money. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and we know the legendary stories of uh, Imelda Marcos's shoe collection. So this is this life of absolute luxury they're living, isn't it? It is. And Imelda is really, you know, really, of course, becomes known for her shopping trips and shopping sprees all over the world. Um, a couple of key things related to the previous question to remember, though, that um, these shopping sprees in some ways become ways for them to hide their money, right? They purchase properties in places like New York City, and this becomes uh, a place for them to park um, some of their ill-gotten wealth as well. And also for all of the imagery of Imelda as like this uh, person that uh, just did shopping sprees and lived a life of luxury, it's actually really important to recall also that she's a really savvy political operator and an integral part um, in running uh, the Marcos regime during this time. Uh, this was referred to uh, by folks as the conjugal dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda. Um, so, you know, it's a, it, it is like she is, de- they are definitely living a life of luxury, but they're also kind of um, in, in many ways, hand in hand in, um, in, in the way that they are exercising power in the Philippines. Right. So she's not, not the little lady who's just grabbing the money and going shopping. She is fundamentally involved in what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And so didn't the World Bank, who'd given all of this money to the Philippines, you know, didn't anyone scratch their heads and go, ah, hang on, we've just given all this money to the Philippines to help the people and, and look at all these shoes she's buying? I mean, do, do financial institutions start raising questions when they see this kind of behaviour? I think you see some, you know, like uh, some eyebrows raised, uh, you know, one of the, you know, like the, the, some of the funny stories that uh, that take place during, um, you know, Imelda's trips. Um, one of them includes like some documentation from I'm 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 blanking on which administration it is, but some documentation from the White House uh, where you know uh, 
higher ups in the White House are complaining that um, Imelda is on another one of her trips and wants, uh, you know, and wants to uh, wants to make a visit to the White House, and um, and you know, people are are kind of aware of it. But again, right, like to um, as as you had brought up earlier, this is something that is seen as a cost uh, that they can bear for uh, for the broader goals of these institutions and these governments. It's just the price you have to pay. So how is Philippines economy coping? I mean, you said, Mark, that at the time that Marcos became president, it wasn't actually in terrible shape. It's obviously, though, needs some international aid with the World Bank, for example, chipping in money. So by the time Marcos is, is into the, the late 70s and early 80s, what's happening with the economy? Um, after the first term, things really start to turn economically. Right? Like uh, these loans initially do drive the continued growth of the Philippine economy. Um, but this system that Marcos develops, what is referred to as crony capitalism, uh, because of all of his uh, loyal allies that are heads of major industries, right? Like straight to start to kind of um, create a economy that is kind of, yeah, that is characterized by control and corruption. Right. And uh, this one of the places that we see this is like in in places like the sugar industry. Marcos uh, cronies that are in control of the sugar industry start to speculate, speculate on the price of sugar in order to um, try to enrich themselves even more. The thing is, right, when this speculation doesn't work out, um, it's not the cronies that pay the cost, but it is the sugar farmers um, that pay the cost. And this leads to, uh, you know, uh, like a, a real sharp downturn uh, within the sugar industry and the sugar economy um, that leads to uh, a lot of really terrible conditions for, for sugar farm, for small sugar farmers um, and uh, leads to a lot of struggles for them. And that's, you know, one example of how uh, things start to turn economically. Um, crucially, right, like the sort of downturn in the economy is uh, is really important in moving the business sector to start to oppose um, the Marcos uh, the Marcos uh, presidency or dictatorship. Um, so, the the business sector um, the business sector turning against Marcos uh, becomes like a, a like kind of a crucial uh, a, a crucial turning point for. Um, for Marcos's support as well. And when did that happen, Mark, that turning of support from the business community? Well, you know, the uh, part of this is, like starts to happen in the mid-70s and like a lot of this is related to the oil, uh, like the effects of uh, various oil crises on the Philippines. Uh, but this, uh, this turn uh, really starts to happen a little bit more decisively in the, uh, in the early 1980s. So then we get to this key, really key event in the story. It's the assassination of Senator uh, Benino Aquino Jr. in 1983. Now, who was Aquino? Why was he seen as a problem that Marcos needed to make go away? Aquino is really Marcos's most formidable political opponent. Right? Uh, Aquino um, is someone that Marcos saw as a, a, a real political threat. Um, also a, a very savvy political uh, figure, someone that had uh, made alliances um, and had connections all across the Philippines. Um, uh, uh, Marcos actually has Aquino arrested right after martial law is declared in 1972. And for uh, m- most of the martial law period, 
Marcos is uh, Aquino is behind bars. Um, Aquino even runs for office in 1978 uh, from prison. He spends a lot of time in prison, a lot of time in solitary confinement. Uh, Marcos knows that um, that Aquino would be a threat if freed, um, and um, Aquino uh, eventually. Uh, because he has uh, uh, some heart issues uh, due to his uh, time in the prison, due to some of the hunger strikes that he had undertaken, um, gets uh, the Marcos's permission to go to Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States uh, for uh, for heart treatment. And while he's there, um, he decides to stay in Boston as 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 a political exile in Boston, and he becomes part of the you know uh, part of what is actually a really robust U.S. based movement uh, against the Marcos regime there. So even uh, even in prison, even away from the Philippines, Aquino is a major thorn in the side of the Marcos the Marcos regime. Now, I'm getting real shades of the Alexei Navalny story as we're telling this story, uh, Mark, as, as we go. So what, what happened to Aquino then? Uh, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the shades are, are, are really appropriate because even for Aquino, some, uh, you know, some like he looked uh, to uh, the examples of Soviet dissidents in the 1970s as, um, as uh, you know, as both inspiration and as uh, part of the conversation on how, um, you know, and on how to um, oppose unjust rule as he saw it. Um, so in Boston, um, he's there until 1983. Um, he looks, uh, Aquino um, is following very closely what is going on in the Philippines. Um, and, you know, he, sees in 1983, um, he sees some opportunity. He sees weaknesses in the regime, weak, uh, a weakening hold, uh, a weakening um, international support of the Marcoses. And uh, Aquino decides uh, that he is going to return home to the, to the Philippines um, to really try to be a part of the opposition movement um, there on the ground um, and hopefully um, contest for power and contest for the, the removal of the Marcoses. And then once he gets back? Well, um, Aquino knew um, and understood very clearly that this was an incredibly dangerous, um, incredibly dangerous move. He had been warned um, by the Marcoses not to return. And, um, and you know, he spoke, um, he spoke uh, from the airplane about the possibility uh, of being assassinated um, when he uh, arrived in the Philippines. Um, and sure enough, uh, when he lands um, in what was then called Manila Airport, when he steps out almost immediately after he steps out into the tarmac um, on the airport, he's gunned down. Um, he is uh, murdered in plain daylight um, and um, yeah. Oh my goodness! So was this all reported on the the news? I mean, it surely it, it's clear to everyone what's happened. The same way everyone is looking at Putin, saying, "Well, obviously he's the one who's who's been responsible for Navalny's death." Was did everyone know immediately what had happened and put two and two together? Yes, um, you know, it was very clear. Um, it was very clear to people what had happened in the Philippines almost immediately. 
Um, there is a, a movement that is called uh, that is called Jaja, J-A-J-A, Justice for Aquino, Justice for All, that is formed. And, you know, this, uh, this movement uh, mobilizes um, a great deal of Filipinos. Marcos Aquino's funeral is, you know, one of the, uh, is attended uh, by the masses. And, you know, the, they're, uh, you know Marcos, uh, what he calls like a, a a commission to investigate these murders. Yes, it was it was clear to folks um, uh, like uh, almost immediately. Uh, the Marcoses start uh, what they called an investigation or an inquiry into things, um, and there is a little bit of uncertainty about uh, of who in the palace actually uh, actually orders uh, the murder, but. Uh, everyone kind of points the finger to the regime itself, right? Like, uh, so if not Ferdinand Marcos himself, uh, someone that is um, someone very close to him. So let's move to, to 1985. So we've got, you know, this sort of groundswell of, of people who are looking for justice for what's happened to Aquino. And then as we head towards 85, I understand there were also rumours that Marcos's health was failing and, and that that might have started affecting how the West saw him. Certainly. Marcos at the time was suffering from lupus and... Um, in his appearances, he was looking increasingly frail, increasingly weak. And people in the Philippines and uh, elsewhere in the world really noticed this. And, they, and there starts to be concerns about succession. And you actually start to see uh, you know, people in Marcos's own cabinet, in his own inner circle, uh, starting to, to vie for power in a post-Marcos, uh, post-Ferdinand Marcos world. And this is also partially why Aquino returns home, right? Like, um, and so Marcos's um, increasingly failing health, uh, you know, becomes, uh, you know, becomes really important for a lot of the political maneuvering um, in the uh, mid to late 80s. So he called Marcos an election in late 1985. I know there was enough of an opposition left that they threw their support behind um, Aquino's widow, Corazon Aquino. Um, others decided to boycott this election, though, didn't they? So what was the feeling across the country when he called this election in late 85? The snap election was a surprise, uh, was a surprise election, right? Um, you know, he announces that he is going to call an election on on live TV in the United States. Um, and it's seen largely as like a, a call that it was meant to appease um, some of his doubters um, in, in in the United States in, in, in within the Reagan administration. Um, you know, so the the this regarding the boycotts right there had been elections in the philippines um uh, uh under martial law in 1978 and in 1981 and each of these elections was uh, was rigged and widely perceived to be rigged in in marcos's favor so the boycott was a strategy that was used throughout the marcos period as a as a method of trying to deny um the marcos regime le- legitimacy uh, or legitimately won elections um, and this was a tense debate among the opposition, right? One of the debates that they had is who to put their uh, support behind. As you mentioned, they decide to put their support behind Cory Aquino. And another really, really tense debate is should they participate in the election? Should they even uh, vie for the election, right? Like Because many assumed that Marcos would um, try to cheat 
and, and rig the election and the participation of a robust opposition might lend credibility to um to his cheating win. <laughs> yes. So the the voting's done. Marcos says, "Yep, okay, I'm the winner." Do we know what the vote actually said or is that lost to history? We don't know what the vote actually said, but we do know that during the election itself, um, election workers walk out in mass, right, uh, and and in protest uh, due to uh, the regular irregularities that they're witnessing all over the Philippines. So while the election is happening, while votes are being tabulated, um, election workers are saying this is rigged, um, this is uh, this is fraudulent, and we are not going to take this. Um, and so already that sets the tone for um, when Marcos declares his victory, um, people around the Philippines um, are already well aware that this is probably not true. Yeah. Now I'm looking at the clock, Mark, and I'm thinking I've got a lot more questions than we have time for. So we may have to just skip through through some of it. But but effectively, the citizens of Manila and I assume other parts of the Philippines pour out onto the streets and Marcos ordered the military to step in and clamp down on these protests. But they didn't. Why didn't that happen? Well, the military, uh, you know, the military was in an interesting spot at this time because they were actually planning a coup against Marcos. Right. So the uh, the the military was planning uh, to take power uh, to take power itself. Um, and so that's uh, that's one major reason that they don't move in. Another major reason that the military does not move in is um, the leader of the Catholic Church of the Philippines, uh, a, man, a man named Cardinal ha- uh, Jaime Sin, uh, calls upon the, uh, the the Filipino people to uh, come out in mass to um, to defend uh, these military folks that had uh, decided um, decided to uh, not go along with the Marcos regime any longer. So how many people do they think were out on the streets of Manila during, during these uh, few days in February 1986? Yeah, most of the uh, most of the uh, numbers that we see are in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, there are some people that suggest that it could have been uh, upwards of uh, over a million. Um, I think, you know, a, a safe guess would be in the in the several hundred thousands. Now, a really key moment as all of this is going on is that President Ronald Reagan, who, of course, following this American tradition, has been behind Marcos this whole time. But he decides that he's done. He's going to withdraw the support. How did he signal that? Well, uh President Reagan, through intermediaries, had been trying to get um, Marcos to step down. Um, the final signal is uh, it, through uh, through one of Reagan's close allies, um, Senator Paul Laxalt. Uh, Marcos, Marcos and uh, and the senator have a conversation where um, where Senator Paul Laxalt advises him to cut and cut cleanly. Uh, that is to uh, leave power uh, to uh, to escape. Uh, Reagan um, agrees to uh, grant Marcos asylum, and this is really how he signals to um, to the to the regime that their support is over. And and is that it for Marcos? Does he take the advice and say, "Yep, yeah, okay, get me on the plane to Hawaii"? Um, finally, uh, like uh, after a couple of entreaties, he is um, he does um, he and a, a large cohort. Um, do take the advice and uh, get on a plane 
um, or uh, get on a plane and escape to Hawaii uh, by way of Guam. And then this is the night, the night that Marcos is, is fled, that the palace is then raided by protesters. How shocked were those who went there by what they found? I mean, imagine walking into um, a palace that displays like such opulent, opulent wealth. People were shocked. Uh, many people were enraged. Um, several people that uh, that walk into the palace uh, scream, burn it, burn it, because of how angry they are. They are. But this is really just even just a fraction of the wealth that the Marcos regime has, right? Like um, soon after this time, uh, the what is called the Philippine Commission on Good, Good Governance is formulated primarily for the purpose of accounting for the billions of dollars uh, worth of goods and money that the Marcoses had stolen from the Filipino people. Uh, Mark Sanchez is here, Assistant Professor of the Department of Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University. It's This Week in History with Suzanne Hill on Nightline. Now, Mark, you know, we know that uh, Aquino takes over. And on one hand, this is really an inspirational people power story. You've got all these masses coming together and then uh, then off the Marcoses go. But the story of the Philippines since then involves continuing to elect authoritarian figures. Uh, we had Rodrigo Duterte and then Ferdinand's son, Ferdinand Jr., also known as Bong Bong, is now the president, which you look at from the outside. How is this possible? How is it possible? Yeah, I think the uh, the presidencies of uh, Duterte and Bong Bong Marcos are, are signals of of uh, of a number of things, um, and I'll mention three of these uh, three of these things that I think um, these elections show us. First, I think it shows us the continuation of oligarchic political power. That is, uh, political families uh, that are really um, uh, really empowered to run things in the Philippines, and these families uh, move between conflict and alliance with each other in order to preserve their grasp on power and on the political system itself. Okay, so that's second, one. Yep, second thing? Second, I think it signals, um, you know, some of the failures of governments after Marcos to live up to the promise of people power, right? This was really an exciting moment for folks where, the, where folks saw the potential for um, incredible change in the Philippines. And uh, for many of them, they did not see that happen. And then finally, I think this also signals the ways that people feel that the Philippine political system did not and does not support them. And um, they have looked um, outside and to um, uh, and through some nostalgic imaginings of history for for political uh, potential answers to that um, to that dilemma. Fascinating stuff, Mark. Thank you so much for being our guest uh, tonight and spending so much of your time talking us through uh, what was going on in the Philippines this week in 1986. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, that is Mark Sanchez, Assistant Professor in the Department of Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University. And Mark's also working on a book about the, uh, the Philippines People Power Revolution, which took place in February 1987. 1986, sorry, 1986. This is Nightlife with Suzanne Hill.